We're going to delve in this morning to the main doctrines in this uh, passage we had. We, we really could go verse by verse, and, and there are more than we're going to cover this morning, but uh, we're going to do the four main doctrines, I think, of these verses. And it's important that before we do that, we define the word love. Because if we don't define the word, we would certainly misunderstand the teaching that is here. As you know, the word love in English is really insufficient for the amount of ground that it covers. It's the only word that we have in English to describe many different feelings that we have and emotions and thoughts. So we say things like, I love my wife. And then we turn around and say, and especially if you're Pastor Michael, I love my dog. Now, does that mean the same thing? Well, Brenda's hoping not. I know my wife hopes not. And I, you know, I always like to say I love ice cream, but that's a different emotion than I love my wife or I love my dog. Now, my wife would say during this time, she would say, I love Hallmark Christmas movies. And I would say, I love their happy endings because I'm always happy when they're ending. That's probably going to get me in a little trouble, but, but you see, we just don't have in English a good way of differentiating the thoughts and feelings and emotions that we have when we use the word love. And so we oftentimes get misconstrued when we use that word. But New Testament Greek does have a better way. It has different words to describe the kind of love that they're speaking about. And there were four main words in what was called Koine Greek that were used that translate into love in English. And I know that most of you have heard these before, but the first one is eros, and that speaks of a romantic and physical love. The second one is phileo, and again, most of you have heard of that. We get the city of Philadelphia from that word, and that's the city of what? Brotherly love, more the love that you have for friends. Um, Then there was another word that's not often used in the Bible, but it's storge. And storge was used for the love of family members. So the love that you have for family members, whether they're believers or not, is a storge uh, love. But the word that's used in this passage and many other passages, in fact, most of the time when you see that word in the New Testament... It's the word agape. Now, this is critical to understand when you are learning the doctrines of love because you must understand that agape is on a different plane than every other kind of love that we think about or or speak about. It's a love that's sacrificial. It's a love that's giving without expectation of receiving. And I like the way J. Vernon McGee put it. He said this, It is not sentimental, it is not sexual, it is not social love. I guess I'm not doing it well. It's supernatural love. (laughs) It's that which the Holy Spirit can put in our hearts and only the Spirit of God can make it real to us. It is the love of God and only the Spirit of God can enable us to extend this Love to others. So, really, by definition, you'll see that agape love is a love that's a choice 
of one's will. It's not dependent on feelings. It's not dependent on emotions. As we go through and examine these doctrines that John, who was, by the way, called the apostle of love, as we go through these and see what he has to teach us, we're going to come to an understanding of really how incredible this agape love is. So we're going to take a look at four teachings this morning, four truths. So here we go. Truth number one, and you'll see that in verses 8 and 16. Truth number one is God is love. God is love. Now, what do we mean when we say God is love? We throw that out there a lot, but what does it really mean? Well, I think we could put it this way. We really just mean that God is the perfect expression of what agape love is. Agape love is an intrinsic part of God's nature. And so you could say this, that he defines the word agape on the basis of who he is. He is the definition. And it's important to note that Agape is not all that God is. You know, a lot of times you hear people say, well, God is love. And what, when they say that, they're using it as an excuse for all kinds of sin. Because what does it matter? God loves us all. Therefore, and here's two things that people think when they say that. They say, well, God is love, so we, therefore he could never punish sin. He could never put people into hell for sin. Now, there's two problems with your line of thinking. Number one, that that would mean that love accepts or tolerates evil. And number two is that God's only attribute is love. And that's not accurate. But God is love. In this book of 1 John, we're also taught that God is light. And in chapter 5... The whole theme of chapter 5 is that God is life. So he's love, he's light, and he's life. All spoken of by John the Apostle. So we must understand that's not all that God is. However, in this particular section, the point is that God exists as the perfect embodiment of agape love. Now, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, Paul gives us a word picture of what agape looks like. And I know that many of you have studied this, and many of you have studied it with me in, in premarital counseling. We go through all of these, and uh, I know that you've seen this before, but I want you to look at these a little bit differently because we're talking about right now the fact that God is agape love. So, We would do well to study each of these words in depth, which we won't do this morning. Uh, But you can also substitute God every time it says love. So if we were to look at 1 Corinthians 13, we'd say God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God does not dishonor others. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects. God always trusts. God always hopes. And God always perseveres. Because God is agape. 
And remember this, that God never changes. We hear people say all the time that, well, that God of the Old Testament, he's a bad dude. But you know, that New Testament God, he just loves. Well, that's not true. That's not true at all. Psalm 55, 19 says, God who is enthroned from old, who does not change. Malachi 3, 6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. So the Old Testament God, and there's many passages in the Old Testament that we could refer to that show us that the Old Testament God is love as well as the New Testament God. If we look at Psalm 103, 17, it says, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. And Jeremiah 31, 3 says, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. So God never changes. He's a loving God in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And since Jesus is God, we can look to him to get a visual picture of what agape love looks like. See, then when we match it up with Paul's word description of agape, then we see we get a perfect match. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians is what we see in the life of Jesus. Now, for me, that's, that's really helpful. I, I don't know about you, but I'm a visual person. I learn so much better by watching and seeing things than I do just reading about them. You know, when I was growing up, sports was my life. I played football, I played basketball, I played baseball. And, and until I got to high school, I really had very little coaching. You know, it was always some, some dad who maybe played a little bit here and there but he didn't know that much and couldn't teach us that much. It wasn't like today the way it is. Where, you know, by the time you're two years old, you have a professional hitting coach. You know, I mean, it's, it just wasn't that way back then. So I learned to perform at a pretty high level by watching what the best players in the world did. I would watch what they did and I would imitate them and try to do it exactly the way they did. So I had Jerry West jump shot. I mean, it looked exactly like Jerry West. And I had Bill Russell's hook shot. And some of the young people were going, who's Jerry West and who's Bill Russell? Okay. Well, just so you know, if you look at the NBA logo, that's Jerry West. He must have been pretty good. Uh, I had Don Drysdale's windup. And again, if you don't know who that was, he was one of the great pitchers of all time for the Dodgers. And I watched him and I could do it. I won't do it. Okay. I won't do it, but I could. I could do it right this minute, and my windup would look exactly like him, except that he was 6'4", and I'm not. <laughs> well, I could go on and on about the players that I looked at and, and imitated and learned to play well by the way they did. So for me, at least, watching how Jesus loved people is the best way for me to learn and combine it then with what I read that the Bible says, because he is the perfect example of agape love. And then I have to wait for the Holy Spirit to help empower me to do that. So truth number one, God is love. Let's go to truth number two. Truth number two is God is the initiator of love. Verse seven tells us, 
Love is from God. Meaning he is the one who gives us the, the ability to choose love in this unselfish way that we're speaking about. Without him giving us that ability, it would be impossible for us to demonstrate this type of love. Why is that? Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but by nature, we're selfish people. Did you notice that? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that in our flesh, even though we can do some good things in our flesh, but in our flesh, at least part of our motive for doing something good is that we really want to feel good about ourselves. You know, we give people presents at Christmas time, and what do we do? We just wait for them to open it, you know, because are they going to like it? You know, are they going to think I, I took the time to figure out what they needed? And so you see what I'm saying? We kind of turn it back on. Part of it is we want to feel good about what we did. Now, if you think I'm wrong, if you think differently than that, then I challenge you to read Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then Psalm 14, 3 tells us this. It says, they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. So we might think that, you know, we're being completely selfless when we do something in the flesh without the power of the Holy Spirit, but really it's not true. There's something in it for us. So we need God to initiate this love in us, and he is the initiator of love, and then he initiates, and then we become the responders to that love. He initiates, we respond. It says in verse 19, we love, why? Because he first loved us. So he initiates that love and we respond to it. And that brings us to truth number three. Truth number three is this. Love is the primary indicator of our relationship with Christ. And you can see that in several places in here. Several verses here. Those who love are born of God. We see that in 7, 12, 15, and 16. And those who do not love do not know God, verses 8 and 20. So again, love is the primary indicator of our relationship with Christ. If you love, that means you are born of God. And again, don't think of the word love in the English sense. Think of it in the Greek sense, agape. If you agape, you are born of God. Those who do not agape are not. They do not know God. That's what John says here. There's no getting around this. John couldn't be more clear and he couldn't be more adamant about this statement that he is making. You see, if there's a litmus test for whether a person is a believer, it's not in they can speak in tongues or prophesy. It's not in how many hallelujahs or how many days you go to church. The litmus test, the proof of ownership that you belong to God is demonstrated by your self-sacrificial love for others and especially other believers. So let me kind of give you an example of what I mean here. Have you ever sold a car? Anybody ever done that? I've sold many of them because I've bought many of them. Not as many as Pastor John, but I'm 
close. Well, when the purchasing party wants to consummate the sale, they're going to ask you for some proof of ownership, right? They're not going to just take your word for it. Yeah, this is my car. They need proof of ownership. They want to know that you have the legal right to sell them that vehicle. And for a car, that would be called a what? A pink slip. Yeah, a pink slip. And if you owned a little disc, little deuce coupe, you had the pink slip daddy. I love to get the young people are going. But that pink slip is the proof that you own the card, has your name on it. It's an official document. Well, in that same way, your pink slip, your proof of ownership that you belong to God is agape love being demonstrated in your life. No agape, no ownership. Jesus told us in John 13, 15, that people would know that we're his disciples. They would know that we follow him by our agape one for another. And in John 14, 15, he said that if you love him, you will obey his commandments. That's agape love. He also said that the greatest commandments were to love God and love your neighbor. Those are all agape. It's our proof of ownership. If you would, turn to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 with me. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. In 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, Paul made this, I would say, momentous statement about agape love and its significance in our lives. He said this, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Verse 3, and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. In these three verses, Paul really runs the whole gamut. He's basically saying, no matter what, if you don't have love, you have nothing. And every time I read this passage, which is quite often because we do this in premarital counseling, we go through these passages. And then every time I teach on the spiritual gifts, I go through these passages. But every single time, verse 3 gets to me. Even if I were martyred for the cause of Christ, I gave my life. Paul says, if it was not for love, it profits you Nothing. Zero. That gets me every time. Does that help you to understand how important the concept of agape love is? How important it is, this proof of ownership that you must have in your life? It's really telling you that ultimately love is what matters. Love is the proof that you belong to God. Well, truth number four, 
And you're gonna love this one. Truth number four we see in verse 18, and that's this. God's love removes fear of judgment. God's love removes fear of judgment. It's so important for us to gain this understanding that God's love should remove from your life forever the fear of being judged. You know, so many people, so many people that I come into contact with, and I know the other pastors would tell you the same thing. So many people that have accepted the Lord into their life, they still seem to wonder if they're doing well enough for God to accept them. Is God, am I really gonna make it to heaven? Or am I gonna be judged by God? And yet they say they're a Christian. They say they believe in Jesus. But am I doing well enough? Are my shortcomings too great for him to really, really accept me? That's what they think. And that kind of thinking keeps a person in bondage. It keeps them in bondage to the law. They're always trying to be good enough. They're always trying to do enough good things to earn God's favor in their life. And they're always trying to not do bad things. And that's okay. But we don't want to be in bondage to that, thinking that if I don't do these things, if I don't be this way, then God is going to judge me. I don't know if I'm going to make it to heaven. How many people have you asked that question to? Do you know whether or not you're going to heaven? Do you know what the number one answer to that question is? Well, maybe if I've done enough good things more than my bad things. Well, that's great if you're in Islam because that's what that teaches. But that's not what Christianity teaches. We must remember that we're saved by his grace and no amount of good works that we do, no matter how many rules you keep, none of that is gonna keep you from God's judgment. It's only our trust in him as Lord and Savior of our life that keeps us from that judgment. But once we have done that, once we have trusted Christ as our Savior and Lord, we need no longer fear being judged. There is no reason to fear judgment. Look at verse 18 with me again. I think it's up on the screen for you. Look at it again. He says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. If you're afraid, it's because you think you're going to be punished. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Well, some people say, well, wait, wait, wait. Doesn't the Bible say we should fear the Lord? Well, yes, Jesus did say that we should fear God, who's able to destroy the soul, rather than fearing man, who can only destroy the body. But that passage is meant to teach us that we should come to the Lord. And once we have, there's no need to fear puny little man anymore because we're in Christ. It doesn't matter. The only thing he could possibly do is take our physical life. But we should rather have reverent fear of the one who controls the destiny of our soul. In the book of, uh, books of Psalms and Proverbs, we're taught two things about fear. One is, it's the beginning of wisdom. And two is, it's the beginning of knowledge. The beginning of wisdom and knowledge is having a reverent fear of, of God. So if you think about it, that reverent fear that you have of God originally, it's, it's a rational fear. It makes sense. Look, 
if you come to realize that you have an all-powerful creator, it makes sense to have a reverential fear of that creator. As Cliff Huxtable once said to his son, Theo, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. Now, God can certainly say, again, you got the young people going, who's Cliff Huxtable? (laughs) Come on. I know Cosby shows are on reruns. But God can certainly say that to us. Now, in Cliff's case, he was only talking about a temporal, physical life. But in God's case, we're talking about eternity here. So the wisdom in fearing God is that it moves us to learn about him, to get to know him. And as we gain knowledge and we gain understanding, we're going to come to some incontrovertible facts. Those facts are the fact that we are sinners, that we've fallen short of his glory, and that we're taught in Romans that the penalty for that rebellion against God, against our creator, is deserving of eternal spiritual death. That is the judgment of God. But the gift of God is salvation in Jesus Christ, who took that penalty upon himself for all who would believe and put their trust in him. And that price was paid in full. We can't say it enough. It was paid in full so that, as Romans 8 tells us, there is no condemnation, no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you need to be assured, if you've received Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, if you're surrendered to him, you're going to see his agape love working in you. And you're going to see that you have that proof of ownership, that you belong to him. When you see that, all fear should be cast out. There should be no fear of condemnation, no fear of judgment, no fear of punishment because perfect love casts that fear far away from you. The truth is, if you have fear of judgment, you're really just not taking God at his word. You're not trusting his word. And and the enemy is great at this. You know, he's going to tell you, you're not good enough. I don't know what you think you believe, but you are not good enough. You haven't done enough good things. Every time you do a bad thing, he's going to help point it out to you. I want you not to let the enemy steal the joy of your salvation away from you. There is no fear, no fear of condemnation, no fear of judgment. Trust God. Take him at his word. His love is unfailing and it's everlasting. So the question that I have for you today is, do you have your proof of God's ownership in your life? Do you have God's love in your heart for people? God's agape. Now look, I'm not saying to try and conjure up some feeling, but to make a free will decision to extend unselfish love to others. That's a decision that you make. God gives you the ability to make it. Then he empowers you with the ability to carry it out. But you have to make a conscious decision. God, I want to see the proof of your ownership in my life. I want to love others. I want to extend that love to other people. It's a decision that you make. 
What's really interesting about it, and it's, it's, I would say that I've noticed it in my life, and God does this in so many other ways, but you know, when you make a conscious decision to follow God, when you make that decision that you are going to extend love to people, no matter how you feel, no matter whether they deserve it or not, it's interesting how the emotions and the feelings that you have towards people change to what you might think more of, I really love that person. There may be a person in your life that you really don't love. In fact, you might not even like them, but God then puts on your heart to extend unselfish agape love to that person. And it's amazing when you do that and you're obedient to God, how he changes the feelings and emotions that you have towards that person. And you begin to see that person with the love that God has for them. And you feel totally different about them. And I'd have to say that's happened to me a number of times. Sometimes I think, okay, God, I know that for sure Paul's thorn in the flesh was a person because here's that person in my life right now. And then you say, but I need to make that choice, God. Help me to love that person with your unselfish love. And all of a sudden, you just really love that person. You, you feel it in your heart as well. God's amazing in how he does that. And I know that most of you here and I, I see the proof of ownership in your life. I see it in this body so much. The unselfish agape love pouring out. And, and look, I know that it's not just from you in your flesh. I know that that's what God's put in your heart as well because you couldn't do it otherwise. I see it pouring out. But there may be some of you here this morning that you're not really understanding what I'm talking about. And maybe you've never made that decision to follow Christ. And maybe you see now that, well, I try to be a good person and love others and do things for others, but maybe my motivation is really not so selfless. And if that's you this morning, I just encourage you to open your heart to Jesus this morning. Understand that you are a sinner, but that you can be saved by his grace. And this morning as we pray, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in prayer. For the rest of you guys, I pray that, that this uh, Advent season, this celebration of Christ, that you will ask God to empower you more and more to love unselfishly with the agape love that, that we've learned about this morning. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, just thank you for this time this morning. I thank you for the worship. I thank you for the word. I thank you for the opportunity to give and the opportunity to fellowship one with another this morning. God, I just want to pray for anyone here this morning whose heart you're stirring right now. And I ask, Lord, that they would make that decision to follow you this morning, to come into relationship with you. And if that's you this morning, just uh, lift your heart to the Lord and and just say something like this, Lord, I see now that I've sinned against you and I'm sorry. And Lord, I wanna turn from that sin this morning and I wanna turn to you. And Lord, I wanna receive you as my Lord and Savior, knowing that you died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And Jesus, I wanna follow you for the rest of my life and I wanna be able to demonstrate the agape love I've heard about this morning. And I thank you, God, for entering into my life as I have asked you.